Hello and welcome to the Susquehanna County Conservation District's Conservation Corner. I'm Don Hibbard. And I'm Courtney Bronze. Each week we bring you conservation topics and events from around the endless mountains. Well, we wanted to do something a little bit different this week and hope to do it every month. Um, we wanted to bring you some eco news, some things that relate to conservation, the environment, but news related. Um, so we have four different stories for you this week, and I think that's what we're going to do. Um, each month is bringing you four different news stories and hope that you enjoy it and hope that you also learn something as well. So the first one we want to talk about is the Joro spider. Um, maybe you've heard a little bit about this in the news, uh, but we wanted to give you the lowdown on the Joro spider. And so I'll start off by saying what's black and white and red and yellow and three to four inches in size and parachutes from town to town. Yeah, you guessed it. It's the Joro spider, um, but it's no joke. And they say like three to four inches in size is huge. Um, they actually say like, look at your palm, the size of your palm, and that's the size of the spider, um, fully grown adult spider. It's predominantly yellow spider, um, can get as big as your palm. It was first sighted or first spotted in Georgia in 2013. Um, they say it originates from Asia and probably came over here shipping containers just like all the other, you know, all the other invasives that we see, um, but they're not sure. But since 2013, it's spread across Georgia and throughout the Southeast. Scientists from University of Georgia, they say that it could take over the East Coast. Um, it's gonna be a while. They say this because um, the area from which it originates in Asia is kind of similar to the weather in the East Coast. Um, so that means that the spider can withstand temperatures, you know, below freezing. Um, bottom line is, scientists say, hey, should try to live with these spiders. They don't typically bite humans they're big but they don't bite um, so I don't know what else to say if you're a spider lover good news if you're a spider hater it's bad news yeah I don't think I'm gonna deal well with giant <laughs> spiders parachuting out of the sky <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the next one I found is pretty cool so uh, imagine being able to monitor an animal its presence in an area and its daily habits without ever actually seeing the animal or getting pictures of it Sounds impossible, right? Yeah. But thanks to environmental DNA, or what we're gonna call eDNA, it's actually not. So I guess I'll start out by talking a little bit about what eDNA is. So as living organisms move through their environment, they shed genetic material in the form of DNA, and this material lingers and it provides researchers with insight to the past and present of the animal they're studying. So the news article that caught my eye in particular was about researchers using eDNA to track lynx, wolverines, and more in Montana. So Jesse Golding is the leader of the multi-species mesocarnivore monitoring program for the U.S. Forest Service National Genomics Center. And for the past five years, she's been developing a novel method of using eDNA found in snow tracks to identify rare forest carnivore species. So the Canada lynx, um, wolverines, fishers, martens, and fox species. 
These animals have a very secretive nature, and that makes it really hard for researchers to gather information about them. So Golding and her colleagues used the eDNA collected from the snow to find out where the animals are. And this eDNA comes from the paws of an individual animal. So when they step in the snow, it can be shed in the form of skin cells or secretions from their scent glands. And collecting these samples is super quick and easy. Um, Golding uses gloves, sterilized equipment, and bags, and then just collects the snow around the samples. And then once it's collected, it's kept frozen until it's ready to be ran through the lab. So positive detection of a species can be determined from tracks that are weeks old, and a single strand of DNA is all they need. Uh, so where do you see this actually being useful? Um, I think as the habitats of rare and endangered species continue to be degraded, um, the eDNA can really be a useful tool for researchers working to make those critical management decisions. Got it. Um, yeah, so like you said, lynx or, or bobcats or, you know, wolves, coyotes, especially those, um, those keystones, predators, that type of thing. Yep. Uh, you know, the bigger ones that they're not very present in the ecosystem find out where they're living how many of them are present um so yeah that's cool i like it all right so i have another news item it's uh, avian influenza if you're a chicken farmer you've probably heard about this already uh for those of us that aren't chicken farmers or don't have any flocks uh around the house so there's a avian influenza it's kind of on the rise um i think about 12 states it's been located in right now um and the usda said on saturday that samples from backyard mixed poultry flocks uh in kansas have been tested so the agency that's really working on this is aphis and if you're not familiar with that term it's the animal and plant health inspection service so they're working closely with state animal health officials in all these states and um, they've quarantined animals and that helps, uh, you know, reduce the spread of the disease. So, so far, uh, some of the states they've identified this in is New York, uh, Connecticut, Iowa, Indiana, Maine, Michigan, Kentucky. Um, not in Pennsylvania yet, so that's good news for us. Um, so, if you're, if you have flocks, if you have birds that you're watching over, uh, be looking out for sudden death without clinical signs, uh, lack of energy, appetite. Uh, decrease in egg production, soft or misshapen eggs, purple discoloration of waddles, combs, and legs. Uh, they might have difficulty breathing, runny nose, coughing or sneezing, stumbling or falling down, or diarrhea. So um, it's also uh, good to note that the CDC, they mentioned that since 2002, there's only been four detection of bird flu making it from avian to humans in the United States. So if you're worried about that transmission from birds to us, uh, it's very unlikely. Um, transmissions to humans can occur where individuals, really they say, have prolonged close contact with infected birds. There, the CDC gives us some advice. They say the most effective way of preventing avian influenza in humans is to avoid sources of exposure. Uh, so that means animal workers should follow the guidelines or the guidance provided by the CDC and use personal protective equipment. Uh, as it relates to it, um, some of the CDC recommendations are to avoid direct contact with the wild birds. 
and observe them only from a distance if possible. Uh, avoid contact with wild or domestic birds that appear ill or have died and to call in and report sick birds or dead birds. Um, it's safe to eat, properly handled or cooked poultry in the United States. They mention a temperature of 165 degrees to kill the virus. Um, just make sure, as always, you know, you're cooking your, your meat safely. Um, CDC does not currently recommend any travel restrictions related to bird flu uh, to countries affected by bird flu in poultry or people. We really wanted to bring people up to speed on this particular flu. You know, we've dealt a lot with you know sickness in the last two years and people might hear something about avian flu and um, there's really not a lot to worry about when it comes to that so uh, just follow the guidelines that are in place um, you know if you do suspect something in your own flock or even in wild bird populations make sure you uh, you report that so the next one I wanted to talk about, um, it's another really cool study. It's actually out of the University of Tokyo, but can be applied here in the U.S. as well. So we know that animals are able to give off specific warning signals to alert each other of danger. But what if plants could do the same? Turns out they can. So researchers at the Tokyo University of Science have discovered that plants actually have a mechanism to alert each other of herbivores. So they used a small flowering plant native to Eurasia and Africa in their studies, and their studies show that when the plants were damaged by herbivores, they released a volatile chemical that triggered epigenetic modifications in the defense genes of other plants. Whew. Yeah, that's, that's a lot a, of big words. <laughs> that's a mouthful. So, in other words, chemical warfare. Basically. Yes. Yeah. So other plants, you know, pick up on these chemicals and then heighten their systems to prevent herbivores from eating them as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So prior studies done have shown that when grown near mint plants, soybeans and filled mustard plants display heightened defense properties against herbivore pests by activating defense genes in their leaves. So if mint leaves were to get damaged, then other plants in the area would respond by activating their anti-herbivore defense systems in response to the chemical signals released by the damaged mint plants. Also, that means when the mint that I have planted um, near the edge of where I mow, when I mow that mint, it releases the volatile chemicals and the other plants around the mint, they also build defenses. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, cool. So the studies get highly technical and pretty advanced from here, but the researchers believe that the communication between plants via volatile compounds, or it's also known as the talking plant phenomenon, can potentially be applied to organic cultivation systems. So it's kind of cool. It could potentially increase the pest resistance of plants. And in turn, that would dramatically decrease our reliance on pesticides. It's a pretty cool study. Yeah. Um, kind of, we've talked about this on the show before about chemical warfare between plants and um, you know how they can prevent pests from attacking them, that type of thing. But it adds kind of a new level to the whole game. It's pretty cool. Yes, so I guess with that, we do have a couple of events for you. Um, first one is Lox Maple Syrup Open House. So this Saturday, March 19th, Lox Maple Syrup in Springville will be hosting their annual open house. And they'll be offering tours of their facility and taps. And they'll also have chainsaw carving, soap making, and fiber arts. So that starts at 10 a.m. on Saturday. It should be pretty fun to check out. Yeah, for um, sure. All the nice weather. 
the above freezing days and the below freezing nights, we're going to make some good maple sap this week. So, All right, so the other one we want to talk about, this one actually relates to the district. Um, so Susquehanna County Conservation District is actually starting a 10-month initiative, and it's called Get Outdoors Susquehanna County. And the idea behind this initiative is really to invite all county residents, um, doesn't matter what age you are, to get outdoors and really experience what Susquehanna County has to offer. So the district's first event will be a hike. It will be held at Woodburn Forest Preserve in Dimmick, PA, and it's called Aliens, Pioneers, and Legends, the Woodburn Swamp Loop Hike. Um, and before I go any further, just so you know, when I say aliens, I'm talking about invasive species that are they aren't native to Woodburn. So we'll be looking at those, we'll be looking at some pioneer species, and also talking about the old trees at Woodburn too. So um, we'll go down to the observation platform and look around at the wetland, and we'll also be looking at some early spring habitat, and we'll also, as I mentioned, be looking at the old growth forest. Yeah, so if that sounds interesting to you, uh, go to our Facebook page. There's more information there. Uh, you can tell us whether you're interested or whether you're attending. And the date for that is March 26th. And the time is from 2 to 4 p.m. Uh, and again, it'll be at Woodburn Forest Preserve. And if you don't have Facebook, um, you can call the Conservation District for more information. Uh, or you can just show up the day of the hike. And again, it's March 26th from 2 to 4 p.m. If you're looking for parking, it's the main parking lot right off of 29. Well, I guess that does it for today's show. If you have questions related to our shows, you can contact the Conservation District by calling 570-782-2105. If you missed a portion of today's show, you can go to our website, www.suscondistrict.org and find our Conservation Corner page with past episodes, links to information about past episodes, and a contact form where you can reach out and ask questions or make comments about the show. You have been listening to the Susquehanna County Conservation District's Conservation Corner. I'm Courtney Browns. And I'm Don Hibbard saying, enjoy the outdoors.